You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. In 2 Chronicles, please find it again. And we're going to consider the 20th chapter of 2 Chronicles together today. A certain boxer entered the ring, and in the first round, he was beaten almost half to death. The bell rang, he made his way to his corner, and he heard his manager say, Tiger, go get him. He hasn't laid a hand on you yet. Well, the young man was able to clear his head for a moment. He looked up into the eyes of his manager, and he said, well, you better keep your eye on the referee because somebody's beating the daylights out of me. I wonder if you came here today feeling as if someone had beaten the daylights out of you. It may have been Wall Street. It may have been some relative, some friend. It may have been a sickness. Is it possible that someone is here today who senses that you're taking a beating? Well, let me remind you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are in a battle. In fact, the Word of God tells us in the book of Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Bible says that our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion prowling about seeking someone to devour. When you and I signed up to follow Jesus Christ, we signed up to do battle with the enemy. So the beating you may sense that you're taking today can be directly related to the the devil himself. Satan is seeking to destroy you and seeking to devour you. Now the good news is, the Bible is very clear, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus Christ in us by his Holy Spirit supersedes anything which the devil can do to make life miserable for you or for me. And that is good news. Last night, I tuned in at the half of the second game of the NCAA playoffs to find out that Duke was behind their rival Maryland by 11 points. I was a bit surprised at that. And I listened to the commentators as they reflected on the first half and they said that actually Duke had been behind as many as 22 points. Well, the outcome of the game, as I watched it, the pendulum began to swing. As it turned out, the final score was an 11-point victory for Duke, a 33-point swing. That's an amazing swing in any kind of basketball game or any kind of sporting event for that matter. In the post-game interview, Jim Nance was interviewing Coach K and also Shane Battier and Jason Williams, the two leaders on the Duke Blue Devils team. And Coach K said this as he pointed to his sophomore point guard, Jason Williams. He says, he has a huge heart. In fact, in the second half, he put us on his back and led us to victory. Now, that's a bit arguable. Battier had something to do with the outcome of the game, as did Duhon and Dunleavy and Boozer and some other players on the team. But what he was saying was, this man led us to victory. Let me tell you what, if you're taking a beating today and you want to win, let me tell you the answer to that is to let God put, him on you, put you on his back today. He will lead you to victory. 
just like he led Judah and Jehoshaphat to victory, as we read in chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles. Let's look at it together, beginning with verse 1. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Now let me stop here just a moment. There's an innocent-looking prepositional phrase in this first verse that gives us a great principle. In the innocent-looking prepositional phrase are those two little words, after this. What is being referred to by the chronicler here? He's referring to what had just happened in chapter 19, and really, he goes back to chapter 18 as well. If we had time this morning, we would begin with chapter 17 and begin to look at the life of Jehoshaphat. The Word of God tells us that when he assumed the throne of Judah, that he did not follow the example of some of his other forefathers. Rather, he focused upon the example of his father David. And he sought the Lord rather than seeking the Baals. He was one who feared the Lord and delighted in keeping the commandments of the Lord. And in that same chapter, the Word of God says something rather remarkable. It says, he took great pride in the ways of the Lord. Now, we know that pride is an evil thing. And maybe the translators of the New American Standard did not do service because actually the Hebrew said his heart was high with the ways of the Lord. It reminds us of what we see in the book of Ephesians where it says, do not get drunk with wine which leads to dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The implication is get full of the Spirit of God. Get drunk on the Spirit of God. What God wants us to do is to be high on His ways, just like Jehoshaphat was. Now, just like us, Jehoshaphat was a human, and he was not altogether consistent in his following the Lord. In fact, he was invited by his northern counterpart, Ahab, the king of Israel, to join into what was obviously an unholy alliance to fight the Arameans. And Ahab hatched this incredible plot to get Jehoshaphat to sign on with him. And Jehoshaphat, naively and rather ignorantly, I might say, went ahead and went to war with him. And Ahab was killed. Read the story. It's a fascinating story as to how he was killed. Basically, the Bible says an arrow was shot at random and found him. And Ahab was disguised because he knew that the Arameans had him as their target. And Jehoshaphat was dressed up like Ahab. And guess where the arrow found its way? To wicked King Ahab's heart and killed him. Well, Jehoshaphat suffered loss too. And as Mike led us in reading in chapter 19, when Jehoshaphat returned to his hometown of Jerusalem, he was greeted by Jehu, the prophet, who basically said, what are you doing? What do you have in mind? You entered into an unholy alliance, and you love the one who hated God. He was talking about Ahab. But then we see a remarkable reversal tremendous change in Jehoshaphat. We see his heart here. He came immediately back to the Lord. He repented, and then in verse 4 of chapter 19, we are told not only did he repent, but he turned all of Judah back to the Lord. And then if you have time, read not now, but later read the rest of chapter 19 and see exactly how he appropriated this revolution of major spiritual proportions in his nation. So he was doing something great. After this, it was after this that this coalition of Moabites and Ammonites and Munites banded together to attack him. Now, there is this notion among Christians that if we really do what the Lord wants us to do and we really change and repent of our sin, then we're going to be free of conflict in our lives. 
Can I go on record today as saying that is not the truth? We see it illustrated here. Remember what I said earlier in the message. When you sign on to follow Jesus Christ, you sign up for battle. Our struggle is against the powers of darkness, and it is a battle. Thank God there's a little R&R along the way. It's not completely all the time the battle, but the truth is we're in a battle just like Jehoshaphat was. After this is when this coalition occurred. Now look at verse 2. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. You may not have a clear picture, and I really don't have that clear picture, of all the geography of the Holy Land, but certainly you must have a picture of the Mediterranean Sea. You know, over on the west, the inlet into the sea, the rock of Gibraltar there in Spain. And then as you move your way across, and if you were going on the northern shore of the Mediterranean, you'd come to Italy and go around the boot hill of Italy, and then you'd move your way up and go through the Aegean Sea, and you'd come around Greece, and then you'd come around and you'd go by Turkey, and then finally you would come down in what today is modern-day Israel. If you have a mental picture of Israel, you'll know that there are two major bodies of water in Israel. In the north, there is a lake called the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful lake, freshwater lake. It empties into the Jordan River. The Jordan River empties into the cul-de-sac that we know as the Dead Sea. At the southern edge of the Dead Sea, it's very shallow, and that is where Hazazon Tamar was. This is where this word of God says that En Gedi was. And this is where these people went as they made their approach to attack Judah. Now, why am I giving all this geography? The reason is very clear. This was not the normal route people would take when they would go to Jerusalem. It was far out of the way. Why do you suppose this coalition of enemies against Judah went out of their way? They did what the devil always does when he attacks us. One of his major tactics is the tactic of deception, coming around the horn of the Dead Sea and then catching Judah off guard. Admiral Yamamoto was the mastermind of the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. His mentor, whom he never met because his mentor lived in the 5th century A.D., his name was Sung Su, he was a Chinese man. Read, wrote this about war. He said, all warfare is based on deception. If the enemy opens the door, rush in. The devil knows that he's in a battle. And you and I would do well to know that we're in a battle too. And that he uses this means of deception to accomplish his purposes. We need to be acquainted with the wiles of the devil. Look at verse 3. And Jehoshaphat was afraid, and who would blame him? and turned his attention to seek the Lord. Now, this is an admirable response to fear. Rather than panicking, he turned his attention to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast, showing his sincerity, by the way, throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. This is a beautiful scene. Now, here are two steps, simple steps to understand, harder to apply, that you and I must take if we're going to let the Lord carry us to victory on his back. The first is to pray. You say, well, of course, prayer. When anyone is in a crisis, that person prays. If you study the history of great battles in the history of the world, what you would discover is that over and over again, some of the most impassioned prayers were prayed by some of the most unlikely candidates begging God for victory. I won't give you illustrations, but look into what happened when Napoleon had 
Moscow surrounded, and it looked like Russia was about to fall to the French emperor. And what God did to save them was he sent a, a really chilling winter. The winter destroyed the attempt that Napoleon was trying to make. And if you'll study, what you'll see is that the Tsar, who was not a godly man, was on his face in a cathedral in St. Petersburg crying out to God to deliver. And certainly God did by an unorthodox way. He delivered in answer to that prayer. And God does this over and over again. But notice this prayer is begun in verse 5. Let's look at it. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. Now, he's standing and he's making a public prayer, and there's purpose behind God's having him give this prayer publicly. Remember, there are others there besides Jehoshaphat. All of Judah has gathered, and he's praying in such a way, certainly he wants God to hear him, but he also wants those Judeans to hear him too as he shares because he prays in a rather unusual way. He asks three questions of the Lord. And it's important for us to see that he was not primarily interested in God's intervening on behalf of Judah, as important as that was to him. He was mainly interested in invoking the person and the presence of God. That's so important. If we're going to have victory in our lives, we have to have the presence of God. Now, we know God's omnipresent, but he's not always in a position of benign influence in his omnipresence. There's something you and I must do to invoke his presence in its ultimate power and influence for good in our lives. Look at the first question reported in verse 6. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, art thou not God in the heavens? And art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in thy hands so that no one can stand against thee. What was he doing? He was reminding, God didn't need it reminded as to who he was. Do you think God has amnesia? No, God knew who he was. But he was reminding himself and he was reminding his hearers that our God, and, and it's the same God that's our God, aren't you glad? Our God is a sovereign God. Our God is in control. Now you may have come here this morning, and I'm sure there are many people who came here feeling beaten up. And in coming here, you might have felt like God is ignorant of what's going on in your life. Not so. We have a God, according to the Bible, who neither slumbers nor sleeps. He never closes his eyes. And the Word says that his eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. His eyes is upon you if you are his child, and especially... If you are sold out to the Lord and you're saying, Lord, I'm yours to do with as you please. You have bought me with a price. Therefore, I want to glorify you with my body. Lord, here I am. Take me. God is aware of what's going on in your life, even though there's no evidence of it, perhaps, at this point in your life. Everything may seem to be coming apart in your life, but rest assured that this God is a God who rules over the nations of the world. He rules over any enemy which you have. He rules over the devil, even. We know from the book of Job and elsewhere, in the book of Luke chapter 22, there's no way that God will ever let anything harm you at the hands of the enemy, namely the devil, without first Satan having to get some kind of permission. And understand this, that God always turns the tables on the devil. Always. The devil is quite stupid, actually. And I'm not going to apologize for having said that. He really is. He's a persistent booger 
but he is not that smart sometimes. He's a formidable foe. But what we need to understand is that we have a God who cares and is sovereign even over the devil. Now, here's the second question recorded in verses 7 through 11. Didst thou not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham thy friend forever? And they lived in it and have built thee a sanctuary there for thy name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before thee, for thy name is in this house, and cry to thee in our distress, and thou wilt hear and deliver us. Actually, this is an echoing of the prayer which Solomon gave. It's recorded in Second Chronicles 6, verses 28 through 30, when he dedicated the temple. Behold, verse 11 says, how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from thy possession which thou hast given us as an inheritance. Now, here's a great principle that you and I need to apply to our lives if we're going to let the Lord lead us to victory on his back. Why was he rehearsing the history of Israel? He went all the way back to the first ancestor, Abraham, and he goes forward and he's telling all these things. Why is he doing that? Is because remembering God's faithfulness in the past helps us to have courage in the present, in the future. Let me ask you, has God done anything for you in the past? Has God ever rescued you before, today? Have you ever been in the process of being beaten up and all of a sudden God swept in and took care of you? In 1988, Reader's Digest carried his story about a boy in Florida who was walking his dog in the woods near his house, and all of a sudden, he was startled by a searing pain in his foot. When he looked down, the largest eastern diamondback rattlesnake he'd ever seen in his life was latched onto his foot. He began to shake his foot to try to shake the snake off, but the snake would not let go. Finally, his dog barked so much that the snake was scared away. The boy immediately tried to make his way back home. As he walked toward home, he fell on the floor of the forest, feverish. The venom was attacking his very life. His father found him on the floor of the kitchen in their home, and immediately he saw the problem because the boy's leg was swelled so badly. He swept the boy up in his arms. He went out to his car, got in the car, began his way toward the nearest hospital. His car, of all things, broke down on the freeway. He frantically jumped out of his car. He began to wave, trying to flag people down. No one would stop until finally a Haitian refugee immigrant stopped, put him in the car, took him to the hospital. When the doctors examined this boy's condition, they told the father, there's no hope for the child child's going to die. There's no way we can do anything for him. Well, day one went into day two, went into day three, day four. Several days passed, and the boy continued to live. In fact, his vital signs began to improve until he woke from the coma that he had been put in by this venomous snake bite. And when he came awake, his doctor and his father were both in the room. And the doctor said, son, you're in the hospital You've sustained a terrible snake bite. You're a lucky boy to be alive. And the boy just shook his head. He said, no, I remember when I was bitten. And he began to retell the whole story. He told about how the snake had bitten him. The dog had scared the snake away. He'd fallen on the floor of the forest. And then he said, a man dressed in white came and picked me up and took me and lay me on the floor of my kitchen. The father of the boy began to protest. He said, we're not religious people. We never go to church. It couldn't be what the boy says. It was no visitation of God. But the boy continued to insist, God 
had come and rescued him. Do you think that boy will ever have problems believing in the faithfulness of God? Now, none of us have had such a dramatic experience, perhaps, but all of us who know Jesus Christ know that God has rescued us. He saved us from our sins. And God is one who can be depended upon. Two Sundays ago, Pastor Joseph was preaching on the importance of our establishing markers in our lives. How when the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan, God told them to take 12 stones representing the 12 tribes and to do it there. But he didn't say, don't leave the markers. You can leave them there, but I want you to have a portable altar, so to speak. Take it with you as a reminder of what God has done for you this day. What he did for you in liberating you from Egypt and helping you get into the promised land and win the great victories that God has given you in the promised land. So here's the principle. Let me repeat it. Remembering God's faithfulness in the past gives you and me the courage to face the present and the future. This is wonderful. Do you see the difference in this kind of praying and the praying that we normally do? It's focusing on the power and the faithfulness of God, not on us. Now look at verse 12 for the third question. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude. God was waiting to hear these words from Jehoshaphat. We are powerless. None of us is powerful. We're all powerless. This is the thing the Lord looks for people like you and me, to admit our weakness to him and say, Lord, we depend upon you for our very lives. We are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on thee. And all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Has it ever been your experience that you didn't know what to do? Jehoshaphat didn't know what to do. The inhabitants of Judah did not know what to do. Has that been your experience before? I love this. We do not know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. The, there are those present this morning who would make fun of the suggestion that turning your eyes and looking to God is the thing to do when you're in a crisis. They think it's too Mickey Mouse. They think it's too pietistic. But let me just ask you this question. Have you tried it? If you haven't, don't knock it. Because this is the way God works in our lives. He wants us to turn our eyes toward Him. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 34, look to Him and be radiant. Just before that, the Word of God says, I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from my fears. Look to Him and be radiant. This is what God wants us to do, to look to Him. This is reminiscent of something that happened earlier in the history of Israel when Israel had gone against the Lord and they had done something to displease God and God sent a plague of venomous snakes into the camp and they bit the people. And Moses pled on behalf of the people to the Lord. And what did the Lord tell Moses to do? I want you to get some bronze, I want you to make a snake, and I want you to put it on the pole in the middle of the camp so everybody can see it and just circulate the word that anyone who looks out of the flap of the tent and just looks will live. Now, we don't know exactly how many people ignored that suggestion, but a lot of them did, and they died. They said, how stupid. To look out a tent at a snake on a pole will live, but do you know what happened to all those who did take the advice? They lived. 
They turn their eyes upon the snake. Remember what Jesus said in reference to this experience? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Are you here this morning and you're suffering from the worst kind of beating because you don't know the Lord? Do you know what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 18? It says that the wicked one, the evil one, cannot touch those who are born of God. I mean, he can have some kind of negative influence on us. He can try to beat us up, but ultimately we're in the care of the Lord because we're in the hand of the Lord. But if you don't know Jesus Christ today, you need to look to him and be saved. Give your lives to him, and he will protect you. He will give you hope. He will give you the help you need to fight the enemy when you're under attack. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, suffering the shame. Now let me ask you, at what point in Jesus' earthly life did he take the worst beating from the devil? When was it? It was when he was on the cross, when he died for our sins, he was taking an incredible beating when he was on the cross by the devil. But for the joy set before him, what was that referring to? It was referring to the resurrection. God, I mentioned earlier, I'm going to say it again, God always turns the tables on the devil. When it looks darkest in your life, remember what Jesus said, when it's darkest, look up, lift up your head because your redemption draws near. You're in a dark moment right now, maybe, in your life. Let me ask you, are you looking up? Are you looking in? If you're looking up instead of looking inward and around you, you're going to find victory when you let the Lord Jesus put you on his back and carry you on to victory. The Lord answers when we pray like Jehoshaphat prayed. I want to learn how to pray like this. I don't know about you. We need to learn how to pray like this in this church. Look at verse 14. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeiel, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. Aren't you glad I had to read that and you didn't? I pronounce these names different every service today. It's unbelievable. I want to draw your attention to something. Where did the Spirit of the Lord come upon Jehaziel? In privacy or in the context of corporate worship? It's in the context of the corporate worship. Boy, I'm glad you're here today. Because if the Spirit of the Lord decided to come upon you or me or all of us, you're going to get the benefit of His coming upon you. Some people didn't set their clocks up and they didn't come today. But you came. And you're blessed because you're here. Don't miss any opportunity. I can't imagine. And I'm, I'm, I'm just speaking from my heart now. I'm not trying to put anybody on a guilt trip. I want to be with the people of God. I want to be with this church. Not because it's my job. I love this church. The thought of not being here grieves my heart. And it should grieve your heart too. Because we're part of the body of Christ. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, the Bible says. What a terrible habit. Of all the habits that you and I could engage in which are self-destructive, probably right up near the top of the list is not meeting together with the brethren. We meet here Sunday morning. We give three opportunities on Sunday morning. We meet here Sunday night. We have wonderful opportunity to grow in the faith. Never miss an opportunity to gather with the people of God, to hear the word of God, 
to hear the voice of God speak to your heart. Maybe the Spirit of God will come and you won't be here. Thomas missed the visitation of Jesus. Why? He wasn't there when Jesus appeared in his post-resurrection body. And verse 15 says, And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. May I paraphrase that? God wants to put you on his back and lead you to victory. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. You know, if I'm antsy, if I'm always trying to fix my problems, if I'm always trying to figure it out, God cannot do his work. He can't put me on his back. I have to be still. And one of the possible translations of that is cease striving. Last Sunday night, you, you, would, you would have been blessed by what Pastor Joseph shared last Sunday night when he talked about how when we have hands full of activity, many times we do not have hearts full of the Spirit of God. We're so busy. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Bible talks about how the church at Ephesus was a veritable beehive of activity, but they had left their first love. They were so busy doing the work of the Lord that they weren't focusing on the primary purpose of their being, to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to declare His glory. And what we need to understand is that what God says here is applicable to our lives too. And I should say this, I love this. Those who are given to doing this sort of thing tell me that verse 15, the verse which we just read, is the exact midpoint of the Old Testament. Half the verses occur before half occur after. Isn't this an appropriate verse in the sovereignty of God? Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Are you fearing the situation in your life? Let's read a little further here. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. What is God telling Judah? He's saying, what I want you guys to do, I want you to get out there, and I want you to get a front row seat, get a real good seat, and I'm going to show you how to really wage war. All these warriors, and if you go back earlier in chapter 17, what you'll find out was there were about a, hundred, about a million men who were able to fight. I just want you to circle around on the rim of the canyon and look down in the valley, and I'm going to show you how it's really supposed to be done. Now look at the last statement. God repeats himself through the prophet. He says, do not fear, and this word fear means this. The word fear means anticipated harm. Somebody here this morning is fearing something is going to happen to you. You're fearing disease. You're fearing financial disaster. You're fe fearing the destruction of your family. You're fearing something. But what the Word of God says, do not fear, be dismayed. Dismayed, this word means to be broken. It is another ploy of the devil. In addition to being deceptive, he seeks to demoralize too. And that's the idea. Do not be fear or be demoralized. Tomorrow, go out to face them. For the Lord is with you. I love that. Do you like that? If the Lord is for you, who can be against you? Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, none of these things can separate you if you're in Christ because you are an overwhelming conqueror through him who loved you. Through Christ we have victory. It's when we let Christ put us on his back and we move forward that we have victory. 
That's how we win in this life. That's how we are able to overcome difficult circumstances, hold our heads high, keep walking when it seems like there's no hope in front of us. Job, a man to whom I've referred several times in the last several sermons, said this. It's recorded in the third chapter in the 25th verse. He said, what I fear comes on me. Actually, the best interpretation of the Hebrew text is that which I fear comes on me. I fear that I fear, and that comes on me is what he's saying. What do you fear? Now, here's our choice today and every day. We can fear our enemy, the devil, and all the stuff he's throwing our way, seeking to make life miserable for us, or we can fear the Lord. Which would you wish to choose? You're probably aware of the fact from our study of the book of Genesis that one of the names of God is the fear of Isaac. We need to fear the Lord. And it's a wonderful thing to fear the Lord. People have a misconception about that. Psalm 112 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. And one of the attributes of the man who greatly fears the Lord is found in the 8th verse. And the Bible says this, His heart is secure and he does not fear. I love that. His heart is secure, and he does not fear, and he will look in triumph on his foes. We can look on, in triumph upon the enemy, the devil, and all his minions. Why? Because we're putting our trust in the Lord. That's why. Not because there's anything inherently good in us, and because the Lord is with us. Now, here's the second thing, and my goodness, I should quit maybe right here. But I'm going to go forward anyway. If you need to leave, you can leave. But you'll miss a blessing if you do. Here's the second thing, and this really sounds crazy. We are, in addition to praying this way, we need to praise the Lord. Now look at verse 18. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And they were prostrate on, before the Lord. This idea of worshiping is the idea of being prostrate before royalty or before God. And it's the only really proper posture that we should assume in the presence of God, by the way. In verse 19, And the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. My voice is about gone today, and it's not because I've preached three times. It's because I've been trying to practice what I'm preaching today. I mean, I sang with a very loud voice in the 815 service. And I sang with a very loud voice in the 930 service. And I tried to sing. I was not as successful in this service to sing with a very loud voice. And this word which is translated praise, at base meaning means to shine or to be radiant. I refer you back to something I mentioned earlier. Look to him and be radiant. Do you ever see people who almost have a visible glow on their face? Why is that so? It's because they're looking to the Lord. They're not looking at their circumstances in their lives. Now let's look at verse 20. And they rose early in the morning and jumped back up just a moment to the last line of verse 17. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them. What do we normally do with our fears? I'll tell you what I normally do. I run from my fears. But notice this. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The word translated resist means to stand up against. And if you've ever studied the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, what you know is that the armor of God only covers the front of the warrior. 
If a warrior turns his back upon the enemy, he's very vulnerable. He has no armor to protect his backside. When you and I are told to face our fears, what God is saying is, put on the full armor of God, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power, and resist the devil, and the promise of God is He will flee from you. It's true. We must need, needs practice this in our lives. And guess what we see here in verse 20? They rose up early in the morning. They couldn't wait. They were chomping at the bits and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Psalm 56, 3 and 4 say, when I'm afraid, I will trust in the Lord. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? In the very word that's used to not fear in 2 Chronicles 20 is the word that David used in Psalm 56. Don't be afraid. Put your trust in the Lord. And look at the last line of verse 20. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. Is he saying we're to put our trust in men? Should you ever put your trust in me? Should you ever put your trust in Pastor Joseph? or Pastor Jay, or any other spiritual leader? Not really, because we're not trustworthy all the time. But what he's saying is, put your trust in their words, because their words are the word of God. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, the Bible says in Joshua 1.8, but meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. How are we to be successful? by meditating on God's word and abiding by its truth. Verse 21, And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. And by the way, there were 4,000 Levites whom David had assigned to do nothing else but sing praise to the Lord. As they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. And when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes. And actually the word translated am set ambushes is ambushers. Now we see demonic influence represented in Moab, Ammon, and the Munites, but we see some positive spiritual energy exercised here as God sets ambushers in place to overcome the enemy. Angels, good angels, I would suggest, against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Now, how complete was the victory? Was it 90% complete? 95? 100%. When you let Jesus put you on his back, guess how complete the victory is? It's complete. It's total. 100%. I love this. And let's jump down in the interest of time. Just look at verses 29 and 30. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. Isn't this great? When we let the Lord put us on his back, he gives us peace that passes all understanding. He gives us peace that puts the enemies who might have thought about attacking us in a posture of fear. The dread of the Lord comes upon them. Now, as I finish up, what I want to do is I want to make some statements about why praise is so effective. Now, listen carefully. The Bible says that 
God inhabits the praises of his people. When God is in presence in this way, Satan is allergic to praise. Satan hates praise worse than he does prayer. He does. Because it brings the presence of God to the premises where the praising is taking place. It brings the presence of God to that place. So if you really want to get rid of the devil, start praising the Lord. Mary Schlosser, who was a very successful missionary to China, said about her relationship to the Lord and her attacks that she made on the devil. She said, I sing the doxology and I dismiss the devil. When we sing praises to God, we just dismiss the devil out of hand. He has to go. When we really worship the Lord, and the time that we're more needing to praise God are the times when it doesn't seem logical to praise. We give a sacrifice of praise. We die to our own selves and we praise God despite what we see around us. Everything's going badly for us. We're taking a beating. So what do we do? We go to praise the Lord. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. But here again, I submit to you, if you haven't tried it, don't knock it. Start applying it in your life and see what God does in response to this kind of commitment. I'd like to read something that Amy Carmichael, herself a great missionary to India, said about this matter. Listen. She said that the eternal essence of a circumstance is not in the circumstance itself, but in our reaction to it. The distressing situation will pass away, but our reaction to it results in a permanent moral or spiritual deposit in the character. Satan intends that adversity shall drive you away from God, causing you to sit in judgment upon him to question his motives, his goodness and justice. Satan slanders God by suggesting that God has mistreated you and that if he was really all good and all powerful, he would never let this sorrow or calamity come to any of his children, including you. Now, I know enough about human nature and Christians to know that there's somebody here this morning who thinks God has given you a raw deal. God bailed out on you at the moment of your difficulty. God hasn't been what he should have been to you. May I tell you, that's sinful thinking because it's not true. It's not true. Remember what every circumstance does and our reaction to every circumstance leaves a deposit. Now, if we have the right approach and we praise God and we recognize his sovereignty, we remember how faithful he's been in the past, the result of that is we put a good deposit in our soul and in our spirit, which will reap a huge dividend in the future. But may I tell you, if you are embittered toward God today because of an apparent lack of interest in you, you have laid up a lot of bitter deposits in your soul. And it's poisoning you and it's poisoning all those around you. And it's time to repent of that. It's time to acknowledge it as sin and quit blaming and accusing God. There's never a proper time to blame God for anything. Even if God were wicked, which is not true, there is no sin in Him. Even if He were, He's still God. He could do what He wants to do. But in His mercy and His grace, He's called you and me to be His children. And He embraces us and He pulls us close to Himself. And He says, I love you and I'll never let anything happen to you that is ultimately harmful to you. The essence of our mental disorders is preoccupation with ourselves. Self-centeredness is self-destructive. Jesus said so when He said, whoever wishes to save his life 
shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels shall save it. Praise decentralizes self. Praising requires relinquishing self-occupation. It puts God at the center, not one's bankrupt self. Forgetfulness of self is real health. Forget yourself and start praising the Lord in the midst of your difficulty. I refer you in closing to the last line of verse 21. Look at the song that they sang. Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. One line song. Now they sang it, I hate to disappoint some of you, over and 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 over. They sang it over and over and over and guess what happened? God gave the victory, didn't he? Because they were willing to put their lives in the hands of the Lord and they let the Lord put them on his back. He led them to victory as they prayed and they praised. And notice what stimulated their statement that the Lord is good. What, what does he say? Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. The last thing that we would consider together this morning is found in 1 John chapter 4. Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. You know why they were so encouraged by this give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is forever? It's because they focused on the loving kindness of God, the unconditional love of God. That braced them, that encouraged them. And for you and me, if we will trust the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding and all our ways acknowledge Him, He will make our paths straight and He will lead us to victory. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let me just ask by a show of hands. How many here today need to say, I have not been letting the Lord put me on His back? I want to confess that today. Would you just raise your hands? Thank you. Thank you. God knows that. And here's another invitation. Having made that commitment, would you say, Lord, today I want with your help to learn how to put, let you put me on your back. Would you just raise your hand? Lord, I want to trust you to lead me. Yes, God knows that. God sees that. Father, we thank you for this day, for the opportunity to come here and be with our brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you in spirit and in truth. And now we ask, Lord, that you would empower us to do the supernatural, not for the sake of drawing attention to ourselves, Lord, but for the sake of depending upon you and watching you work. In Jesus' name, amen.